0: Welcome to The Path to Lawyer Well-Being, a podcast series sponsored by the National Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being, where we talk to cool people doing awesome work in the lawyer well-being space. I'm here with my co-host, Bree Buchanan. Hey, Chris. And uh, we're here with uh, really one of the the pioneers in our well-being space. It, It is always, I think, an honor to be uh, the first guest of any podcast series and we are uh, obviously thrilled to have uh, Anne Bradford uh, here with us. Um, Brie, you want to go ahead and kind of do a quick introduction of of Anne, a dear friend of ours and you know again Absolutely. somebody who's been doing incredible work uh, on behalf of our profession.
1: Absolutely, I'm delighted to introduce Anne Bradford and who is somebody I admire Um, And who I genuinely like. And I know that whenever I'm going to have a conversation with Anne, I will do it with a smile on my face. So that goes for this podcast today, too. Anne, thanks so much for being here today. Um, So Anne, just a little bit about her background. She started out in big law uh, and spent some time there and then made a pivot over the course of her career and ended up going to University of Pennsylvania and pursuing a master's in applied positive psychology. And I can't wait to hear Ann talk a little bit about what is this positive psychology business. Um, She has been uh, a very prolific writer. She has uh, published a book entitled Positive Professionals She's also been very involved in the lawyer well-being movement and has been a pivotal person. She's somebody, when I think about the work that the National Task Force has done, um, but for her, we would not be where we are, truly. She stepped to the into the position of Editor-in-Chief for the National Task Force report and took um, seven or eight writing groups, uh, very disparate styles, and pulled it all together and added all the research and really made the report in many ways the incredibly um, preeminent document <laughs> on lawyer well-being. And so we owe so much to her. She's gone on to produce the, the ABA's wellbeing toolkit, which is an open source document that has been downloaded and used by thousands. So um, I don't want to just take all the fun away, Anne. So I want to give people an opportunity to hear from you. One question we're asking everybody that's our guest, um, tell us what brought you to the lawyer well-being space. When I look at your bio, I see that pivot from big law over to pursuing uh, that master's. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would.
2: Yeah, good question. And thanks so much for having me as the first guest on the new podcast. And Brie, I always love speaking with you and it leaves a smile on my face as well. So this should be fun. And um, so how I got into well-being, it's, it's a long story that I'll try to make short. Um, but its it, it started as far back as, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was 11 years old. That's when I first started saying I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, and unlike so many of us, you know, my childhood dreams came true. I uh, actually kept the dream up, went to law school, which was pretty odd because I was the first kid in my family to even go to college, let alone law school. So when I got my law degree, it was really just one of the happiest and most proudest days of my life, you know, and then I got a judicial clerkship, and then I got this great job at Morgan Lewis, partner, equity partner. It was like a on the outside, um, everything looked really successful, and it was. I was very proud of my accomplish- accomplishments, but as I began, you know, getting a little bit older, <laughs> um, I started questioning whether this was all that there was. Was I kind of living up to my 11-year-old dreams of what it was to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of impossible to do, but uh, I, I kept asking whether is this all... That I'm going to do in my one short life. And so really it began to be a deterioration of meaningfulness for me. I became a lawyer because I wanted to make the world a better place. Um, And I was an employment lawyer I was an employment litigator on behalf of defendants and I never felt bad about what I did. Um, I thought I was protecting a law that that really meant a lot to me, but was it enough. And eventually I couldn't answer yes anymore. Um, And so I ended up um, applying to get a master's of Applied Positive Psychology from Penn while I was still practicing law, thinking I was going to fix myself or fix my culture. I was going (laughs) to fix something so I could stay because I wasn't leaving. Uh, But as I got more into it, um, I just started feeling a pull that I could either stay in law and kind of do this other well-being stuff part-time Um, or I could leave and really potentially make a bigger contribution to the legal profession by helping to make it a place where people of a whole kind of variety of backgrounds and interests can stay and be happy and thrive. Uh, And so I made the really hard decision uh, of leaving law in in 2014, and I kind of liken it to, it was like tearing my arm off. I mean, it was a really hard decision. Wow, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and, so, and then I, I resigned from um, my partnership position in the firm and then almost immediately started my PhD program in organizational psychology, which I'm still in the middle of. And so now I focus entirely on the legal profession, but the individual organizationally, institutionally, of really helping to use science, apply science to help make the profession, help it live up to its potential. Um, to be a place where lawyers can really feel like they're doing something good for society and also thrive themselves. Uh, and so I didn't really leave the law. I just, you know, I'm I'm contributing to the law in a different way now.
1: Yeah. I love that you've you've verbed thriving.
2: <laughs> That's
1: great. Thrive
0: themselves. All right. Yeah, and I, and I think it would be helpful for our listeners to you know, you've now been, you know, for the better part of, of, you know, five, six years, even before that, you know, what what would be your assessment of kind of what the current state of lawyer well-being is? We know that the report was was released three or four years ago, right? We, we think that that was a, a significant catalyst in a national discussion. Uh, feels like we've been making progress, but I'd just be curious on your current assessment of where we're at and and what you think is on the horizon in terms of where we need to go.
2: Yeah. Good question. I think it's, for me, I feel like it's a really exciting time to be in this area right now. Uh, and I've had this conversation with, with Brie as well. I think people who have been doing well being in the legal profession for a while are feeling like we're, we're making, there's movement. Now we're starting to make progress in a way that's really exciting. Uh, and I do think the national task forces report that came out in 2017, was a catalyst for that, that there already was so much talk and um, action going on in kind of small cells, and that the report then really catalyzed thinking organizations uh, around this idea of well being. Um, and now I think, mo- I don't think you can talk to a firm or a lawyer who hasn't thought in some way about lawyer well being, and that was not true when mm-hmm. I was growing up uh, as an associate. Well being wasn't talked about really at all. And it was sort of considered it's, it's your problem, not mine, where I think now organizations are getting more on board of seeing This is really a team effort that we are responsible to each other for this. Uh, So I think that's great progress. I do. um, I think we're still at the very beginning, though, I think we'll you know, where I'm hoping to see the evolution will go to is from this individual level, which is really where the movement is primarily focused now. So things like um, stress relief, meditation, resilience, these more individually focused programs, nutrition, physical fitness. These are a lot of the things that I see that firms are doing um, and, and, you know, and I see CLEs around and that's fantastic. It's a great place to start. And it's probably the easiest place to start. Right. Absolutely. But I think, yeah, the the next, um, you know, part of our evolution needs to be more organizationally where, and I think firms are starting, uh, they're, they're sort of at the beginning of that now of seeing this as more wide scale culture change that if we really want to promote lawyer well-being, we have to seriously look at the cultures that are recreating um, the the ill health that we're seeing in lawyers like what about the way the law firms and I come from a law firm background but when I say law firms I really mean all kinds of legal employers Uh, but what are they doing and not doing um, to support well-being and seriously uh, looking at their policies and practices um, and how can we change those And and I think then we also need to evolve to more of an institutional level um, or I kind of people raise their eyebrows when I say it, but even things about how our court system is run, how judges treat lawyers, how clients treat, how clients um, in-house clients uh, treat their outside lawyers and how the outside lawyers treat their clients. And when I, I was a litigator myself, thinking about the judges uh, and, and multiple times seeing judges deny uh lawyer's request to, to move something because they had a vacation or they weren't feeling well or, or judges just being disrespectful, and lawyers sometimes being disrespectful to judges as well. But I do think it's an institutional-wide um, challenge of how can we rethink our system so that lawyers can still be their best and do their best for their clients, uh, but also be well themselves. And I, I think like we, we've made great progress, but we have a long way to go.
1: No kidding. Yeah. And I And I also talk a lot about the fact that it's not just individual lawyers that we're trying to get to change the way they go about their work, but it's the culture change. And that's really hard. And so I know that when we were writing the report, there was discussion about what are sort of the levers of the legal system that we can push to try and bring about some shifts to this, and in particularly around you've talked about with legal employers, and I know that you currently go out and speak to major law firms on this on these topics, uh, and what they can do differently. Can you give us some examples of what a law firm, a mid-sized or large law firm, could do to bring about some culture change so that well-being is prioritized?
2: Yeah, I think the first place for organizations to start, and I actually think it might be number one, the number one recommendation in the National Task Force Report, number one or number two, uh-huh. but it's about leaders. Uh, and I truly believe this. And my my book that uh, that you mentioned when you're introducing me positive professionals, that's really what it's focused on, leaders in law firms. And by leaders, I mean, partners and anyone who is responsible for Uh, supporting, influencing others. And I think a lot of partners don't actually think of themselves as leaders if they don't have a formal leadership position. Uh, But they really are because they have such an impact on other people. Um, And, you know, the organizational science part of this uh, shows that leaders really are the creators of culture. They are the most important lever when we talk about creating cultures and changing cultures. Uh, and so often when I talk to firms, what I'm talking about is focused on partners, uh, and how they interact with associates. So many of our firms, although this is changing, but many of our firms have not thought about doing any kind of sort of leadership development, uh, with their, with their, Uh, Aspiring partners and their current partners. And so we think there's many partners that want to be want to be better want to do better, but just have never had the skills tools or training. uh, To do so. Uh, And I, so I think that it is that is the first place to start uh, of really talking to the the partners about how they their own kind of supervisory skills, but also with their role modeling to other uh, to the associates and to not just the associates the staff and everyone around them that you can come out with you know the best well-being policy uh, and your professional development people and your well-being director can uh, have really good words to say but if the partners aren't doing it um, that's what everyone else is going to follow because they're what you know staff and associates, and all the other lawyers, like they want to they do well. And so they look to the partners to know what that looks like. So if they, they see partners that are, <clears throat> excuse me, that are not sleeping themselves, that are typing emails in the middle of the night, that aren't taking vacation, that are rude to others. Like that's the pattern that they're going to follow. Absolutely. Uh, and so that I, it's one of the things that I always underscore when I'm talking to partners is that everyone is watching you very closely. The higher you get up into an organizational hierarchy, the more people are watching you, both for "What is the value system here?" and "What do you think of me?" Right. And so although you might not think of yourself as any different, "Oh, I'm still you know this A man Bradford, I just have a new partner title like nope, you're actually different because people are treating you differently, um, and your behavior has a much bigger impact on them, uh, both for their own well-being and for them watching what's valued. And so I think, you know, there, there's, there are other levers, but I think that one is so important and such a challenge that that's where we should just be focusing for a while.
0: <laughs> yeah. Are, and are you are you optimistic that, that the, the, the cultural elements that position those leaders to move the profession forward is going in the right direction, the wrong direction? Are you, you know, there's generational things in play, right? There's societal factors in play. There's you know, it certainly feels like there's more willingness for folks to be vulnerable, right? Which is a, probably a driver that could be really helpful in, in, uh, in, in culture shifts within the profession. So I'm just kind of curious on your outlook of, you know, how optimistic are you? And what do you think are the kind of the underlying drivers that could either accelerate or hinder our ability to uh, engineer this shift?
2: I think I'm always optimistic. We <laughs> do <laughs> you know that of you. But, uh, but I would say that my experience is that organizations are still all over the map. Um, I would say like e- the, the ABA has come out with a wonderful ABA well-being pledge where many organizations, especially law firms, have signed up saying that they're going to uh, really commit themselves to lawyer well-being. And I would say even within that group who have made a public commitment they're all over the map that some of them. It's nice window dressing, but everyone else is doing it. So we need to do it to show that we care about well being. And the, there's others that I would say really are trying to figure this out. Uh, so I think that at least now they're interested in asking questions, even the ones that just have it as window dressing that's progress. It's better than what <laughs> before. Once you start making public statements about your right. commitment. You're much more likely to start taking action because people are going to start questioning you, and you also, you know, want to be consistent with your public statements. So I think um, I am optimistic, but I think there are so many, there are many obstacles uh, to getting to where we want to go. Uh, just you know, our billable hour system, which is going to take a really long time to change, uh, is is everyone knows it's a problem. I don't know that you could find a single law firm leader that say that says they like the billable hour structure but just no one has found a way to change it yet
1: um, and i think that you're a heretic for saying that i mean <laughs> i mean you know to go ahead and call it out i get up and talk and i usually don't do this in a big room because i'm just afraid what's going to happen but really if i can get around to it the billable hour is the 800 8000 pound gorilla in the room until we have some shift with that it's going to be a hard time to really change culture.
2: It, it is and I'm with you. I don't often talk about it in large rooms. I talk about it in small rooms but I will also say that the science on it on, on number of hours worked is really interesting. So there was a big study uh, in 2014 by led by Larry Krieger on like what makes lawyers happy. Let's stop Talking about only what makes them sad. So what makes lawyers happy? And their study found that number of hours alone was not related to subject was not related to well-being or happiness. Um, but billable hours were. The, the more that billable hours rose, the more um, less happy that people became. So you could have two lawyers working the same number of hours but have different levels of happiness based on whether one felt like they were doing it freely and autonomously because it was their own choice versus feeling like they were forced to because of billable hours. So there's this idea of a basic human need that we have is autonomy and it supports intrinsic motivation like am I doing this because I enjoy it because it's my choice to be doing it and it's highly related to happiness and energy uh, and and all sorts of well-being that we care about. And so it's not it's not just that I think when people think about billable hours, it's often, oh, because we're being overworked. And yes, there is a lot of overwork in the profession. It's absolutely true. But there's also it's just um, harmful cultures that but it's either worst. Forced... Yeah. Yeah.
1: What are you billing your time doing, which can be really mind numbing and it gets back to that meaning piece.
2: Yeah, and do I feel like I I'm just making up hours because I have to Am I having to find work when I really, you know, need to go take a job just because I need billable hours rather than because I'm so engaged in In what I'm doing. So I think billable hours is a challenge for uh, a number of problems, but there's, there's also like firms tend to be extremely competitive and when you get to the partnership level. Like the way compensation works, like there's there's all kinds of issues. I think the uh, the billable hours is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. But I do think there are a number of the ways that have just been standard practice uh, within the legal profession that are posing obstacles that are gonna they're gonna be hard to change. But I think again, I remain optimistic. It's just not gonna happen overnight.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I just want to commend to everybody the study that um, Anne just mentioned. It's called "What Makes Lawyers Happy," uh, and by Larry, Professor Larry Krieger, and it's it's really a great piece of work. And maybe we can get Larry on the podcast sometime,
0: yeah. Chris. It's probably be a good a good time to take a quick break here from one of our sponsors. What a, what a great conversation, and Again, thank you for being here. Let's take a take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
2: Your law firm is worth protecting. And so is your time. ALPS has the quickest online application for legal malpractice insurance out there. Apply, see rates, and bind coverage, all in about 20 minutes. Being a lawyer is hard. Our new online app is easy. Apply now at applyonline.alpsnet.com.
1: Welcome back, everybody. We have Anne Bradford with us today, who is the founder and owner of Aspire, and also has been a pivotal leader in the National Task Force uh, and Lawyer Wellbeing movement across the country. And one of the things we're going to talk about with Ann in this part of the uh, presentation is about her pivotal role as being a founder of Lawyer Wellbeing Week. Um, and Chris is going to talk to her about that in just a minute. But but Anne, I really, one of the reasons I wanted you to be one, our first guest is that you can really speak to a foundational component of our work, which is how we defined well-being. And in fact, I remember when we were writing, uh, you as the editor-in-chief kept pulling us back to, okay, we need to define these terms. We need to substantiate what we're saying with data and studies and you know, all of the 200-plus whatever footnotes that were in the report and really tying us back to, to science. So could you talk a little bit about how we came about to define lawyer well-being? What does that mean?
2: Uh, yeah. So this was uh, it, uh, set out in the report. We had a couple of pages of just saying, okay, we're, we're all wanting to talk about lawyer well-being. Let's talk about what we mean. And I need to give a shout out to Courtney Wiley and Patrick Krill, the three of us are the ones who really did the research uh, and debated with each other and then uh, offered it up, proposed it to the the whole national task force um, for acceptance. But what we did initially was to look at what other organizations were doing, um, both like corporate organizations and also organizations like the World Health Organization Uh, and other large organizations and how they were defining well-being and how they were approaching it. Uh, And the first thing that was obvious is that this was a multi-dimensional concept. It wasn't that you were, it's not binary. You're well or you're not well. It's a continuum and has lots of different dimensions. And the other thing that the World Health Organization agreed with, thankfully, (laughs) was that it was well-being isn't just the absence of illness. Uh, it's also the presence of full well-being. Um, and Brie, you'll recall that I wasn't only harping about the evidence. I also was always uh, wanting to remind us to not only focus on the absence of illness uh, in our report. Uh, and understandably, that's where um, a lot of people tend to focus, because that's important. Of You know, when people's uh, lives are really being harmed and ruined um, by alcohol use disorders and mental health, you want to focus there on on just helping those people get better. But there's so many lawyers uh, in the profession that although they don't have a diagnosable illness, they're not fully well. And so we wanted to capture the full continuum of well-being and all of lawyers, no matter kind of where they were on the continuum. And so that's how we defined well-being of really making sure, you know, the first thing we noted is just like the World Health Organization, we are defining this to mean both sides of this, of curing illness and also promoting full well-being. And then the multi-dimensional concept of uh, this involves both mental health, intellectual health, physical health, of all the different areas uh, of our lives, these work um, synergistically to make us fully well. And then when you look at one of the the big dimensions that is important to lawyers, all of them are, but it's occupational health. Um, As lawyers, are we we fully well? Um, And we define that. And that's an area where I have focused more on lately, like what do we really mean and how do we measure it? uh and is it just again? like so many people will focus on things like burnout um or depression but what else is it like if we're looking at optimal functioning what we want to look at is yes we want the absence of illness but we also want things like engagement job satisfaction high performance um low turnover intentions like people who actually want to stay and thrive here so i think even just getting into each dimension um, there's more that we need to understand and figure out how to measure, uh, so that we know whether we're making progress or not. Right. But that's basically the gist.
0: It's it's it, you know one of the pages that I'll refer to our, our listeners to is page nine of the of the report, which I think has just a, a wonderful graphic of the holistic dimensions that I think you, you cite the, the the emotional well-being, the occupational well-being. Intellectual, spiritual, physical, social, right? And 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 I'm I'm curious, and you know, just because of how much scientific research that you've done and your work on the occupational side, you know, you've done some work as part of your master's program on you know building uh, the positive law firm, right? And and what, what does some of the research kind of say out there uh, with respect to that part of the of the well-being definition that I think that you're spending a considerable amount of time really wading into.
2: Yeah, so my uh, my master's capstone was on building the positive law firm. uh, And then that was further expanded in my book, uh, positive professionals. Um, And and there's, you know, a lot of dimensions to that. The first thing I already covered, which is the importance of good leaders, because they create culture. Uh, I think that one of the other things that it's so important in the legal profession uh, that that gets missed is that working hard isn't the problem um that people who are highly engaged and love their work like they work hard and they work a lot of hours but failing to take time to recover that's when we start uh, well-being can start the wheels can start coming off and so it's I, i don't think that um there's so much focus on lawyers work too hard i think we should just turn it and say lawyers need to recover good lawyers are going to work hard. Anyone who loves what they do and are passionate about what they do are going to work a lot of hours. But thinking about um, how we recover, and there's a whole body of research just on what are are the best ways to recover. Uh, And I talk about it a little bit in my book, but it's things um, like just sitting on a sofa and watching TV is not actually the best way to recover and actually can sap energy. So um, one of the best things for lawyers, people who are very cognitively invested in their work. So lots of brain power. One of the best ways to recover is actually physical activity. Um, it, it's very engaging, it, may, it makes your mind come off your work. Uh, and also just physical uh, physical movement is really good for both our brains uh, and our bodies. And the, the disengagement from work is a really important component of recovery, of finding something that will engage your attention so thinking about what are called mastery activities so art music sewing knitting anything that will fully absorb your attention is so is a really good and important activity for recovery because uh, it helps you disconnect a little bit from work and also has other sorts of great benefits Um, and i don't think we can talk about recovery without talking about the importance of sleep which I do think is a challenge. Like when, when I was a lawyer at my firm, like it, it was honestly like people would sort of be competitive about how little sleep they had (laughs) over the week. Uh, And that's just, that's toxic that those kinds of things just have to change.
1: Yeah. And I talk about that when I go out and speak to new lawyers and telling, just talking to them about the importance of sleep and how everything that you need to do as a lawyer is not going to be online if you're not sleeping and there's no honor in, you know, bragging about being powered by, um, you know, Red Bull, <laughs> it just it is not, it's not that you're not going to get the best work product. So
2: it is, it is how I was one of those people. Like I'm embarrassed by some of the things, boy, guys, if you had known me back then, like some <laughs> of the things that came out of my mouth, <laughs> like, I was one of those people. So like, I totally get it. It's, it's hard to change. I'm still like recovering on that whole sleep is good. Uh, mm-hmm. sort of a thing and I've read all the science like I'm absolutely convinced, but you know there's just this draw of I have to get more done. Um, so sleep is a really important thing to work on in our organizational cultures.
0: Let's spend a couple of minutes in, in uh, talking about something that uh, you know in your capacity as the as, the, as, as a, a leader of the ABA's law practice uh, divisions attorney well-being committee, you, kind of hatched uh, an idea uh, knowing that we needed to continue to keep this issue front and center. And that was lawyer wellbeing week, which we, we, we just uh, enjoyed. Um, and, and I, I would just love your perspective on why you felt like that week was so important uh, to a sustained awareness of this particular issue. What you, what will you ultimately learn from lawyer wellbeing week in terms of the amount of activity, which I think was enormous and, and, uh, and encouraging and, uh, and, and, and why it's so important that we continue to keep this issue front and center.
2: Yeah, so Lawyer Wellbeing Week had been on my mind for several years and so I was very excited that it finally came together. And there were a number of reasons why I thought it was important. Um, one was that there were so many people that wanted to contribute in some way, uh, but didn't know how. And so I wanted to create uh, one event that was big enough and diverse enough for a lot of different people to contribute. And then second is, is just what you said, Chris, of keeping attention on this important topic that we've all seen kind of, you know, fads come and go in a legal profession that something is, there's so much energy and attention around it for a couple of years, and then we move on to the next thing. Uh, and this just well being just can't be one of those things. This, we have to sustain this. Lawyer well being is too important for it to just become another fad. And so, creating an annual event to really focus attention uh, around the, the the idea, keep attention on it, create a time and space perhaps for, for more innovation, discussion around it. Firms get to see what other firms are doing just based on social media uh, and by communicating with each other. Uh, and so we had the first well-being week was was just this last May. Unexpectedly, we had a global pandemic <laughs> occur. Uh, and it we did, you know, we had to pivot pretty quickly. There were firms had and other organizations had been planning some really cool in-person events that mm-hmm. hopefully they'll still be able to do uh, next year. But everything had to go remote. And I, I will say, like, I was pretty disappointed. A lot of people were pretty disappointed. But in the end, I think the silver lining was that people were even more open to the idea of needing to care about well-being in the middle of this really difficult time. So although we couldn't do a lot of the programming that we wanted, I, it may have even been better in that people were so much more open to this message than they might otherwise have been. Uh, and so there was Lots of engagement, involvement by bar associations, law firms, um, in house departments, uh, it, because I think everyone has become interested in well being, but also they were looking for stuff to get out to their lawyers during this time that they knew a lot of people were struggling. Um, and I do hope it becomes, continues to be. Uh, Absolutely raising awareness but I also really emphasize innovation of really thinking about how do we move this forward like the meditation sessions and resilience sessions are really important but how can we push lawyer well-being week to get organizations to think more culturally and institutionally uh, as well um, and they there I've gotten very positive feedback uh, about it. And so we're, you know, hoping that it can, that it continues and that it will be an annual event for many years and that we just keep making it better and better and find even better ways to serve the profession.
1: Absolutely. And it's definitely a priority for the National Task Force for 2021. So mm-hmm. and let's hope we can get together and, and enjoy that um, in person. Um, I wanted to end because you're you really are, and I mean this, it's you know, and it's complimentary, but I really mean you are a visionary and a thought leader in this space. And so I'm gonna push you a little bit to think about um, how do we know that lawyer well-being is done? It's fixed? We mm-hmm. can check that box. I mean, what, when we sat in the room, uh, the original founders in 2016, we talked about that this is a project that will take at least 10 years because we had a sense that it was, it, it was a, really a lot of heavy lifting. Um, but we didn't really break it down to what, what would the world look like.
0: Yeah, what does success look like?
1: Yeah, right, Chris. What does success look like in the lawyer well-being? And
0: you're, a, you're a metrics person too, so this is even better.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I actually think those are two different questions. Um, I think what does success look like is a different question than when will we be done? Because I don't think we'll ever be done. That's right. Because the profession will continue to evolve, the world will continue to evolve, people's values will continue to evolve. And so what lawyer well-being means and how we get there Will be an a forever project, um, but the the urgency that created the national task force report um, had a lot to do with ill being, which was the the statistics that got all of our attention on the uh, the level of alcohol use disorders uh, and and mental health disorders, and so. Alleviating that, uh, I think, it is, is job one. Um, and my, how do, how do we know that we've succeeded? Um, I thought a lot about that just with respect to Lawyer Well-being Week. Like, how do we know we succeeded? And I think, like, one simple, more simple one is um, have we raised awareness about the importance of this issue? and how how would we measure that? But then have we decreased the incidence of alcohol use disorders uh, and raised the incidence of people's willingness to seek help? Uh, And I think those, like we, no no organization yet has been doing broad scale regular surveying to measure that Uh, and you know, for a lot of reasons, but I do think like that those would be the kinds of measures that I would want to look at first because those are the things that are potentially ruining people's lives. Um, and then moving to the and these aren't mutually exclusive, but then also looking at the the more thriving aspects of well-being are: do we have high job satisfaction, high engagement? Um, do people feel that their work is meaningful? Uh, those kinds of things, which there's, you know, measures for, for all of that. Uh, so I think like if, but I, but I don't want to, those, you know, those things are hard to get at. That's costly to do all those things, <laughs> but, but I do think that's how I would measure it. But I, but I don't want to uh, undermine the importance of are people realizing that this is important. Like, have we got people's attention? And I think on that score, um, we've made incredible progress, yeah. whether we've made a dent yet in alcohol use disorders and mental health, like, I, I'm not sure, but we have to have that first level of awareness before we get to the next. And then next, you know, are we getting to full thriving, Are organizational cultures fixed, <laughs> our institutional, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what those measures are yet, but I think that's a longer way off.
0: Yeah, the full, the full thriving, I think, is really an interesting component because, you know, again, there's the opportunity for folks to pursue a legal career and find personal and professional satisfaction. You know, it, it, so many of, I think, of our colleagues I ultimately find that they may have made a wrong decision, right? And and one of the questions that I ask oftentimes when I get up the podium at a regional or a state bar gathering is, would you recommend if your, if your son or your daughter or one of their close friends came to you and said, should I go to law school? Um, that generally the answer is is a little startling of a lot of people saying no, right? And that I think to, to me that says something about the systemic nature of problems that people can't maybe find what they're actually looking for or there's a false sense of expectation of what they thought it would be like versus what it ultimately is.
2: Yeah. I think it's all of those things, even though I've left law, I would actually say, yes, go to law school. There are so many great things about being a lawyer, but also stay true to the reason that you're going to law school. That Larry Krieger, who we mentioned earlier, has done on work on the evolution of values for law students throughout law school. And what he finds is that law school cultures channel lawyers toward, well, the brightest and best go to the big firms. And that's great. there are lots of great opportunities at big firms and if that's the right fit, do that but there are other people like maybe me that you know, sort of had a different value system, but I wanted to do what the best kids were doing yeah. uh, and so I was actually going to be a prosecutor and was looking for internships with prosecutors' offices and a professor came to me and said, "What are you doing? You have good grades you should go to a big firm and I'm like, well why, don't, why would I do that?" I said I would that that's not what I wanted to do when I came to law school. And he said, you can always go from a big firm to a prosecutor's office, but you can't do the reverse. So just go try it. And so I did. And there's, you know, I got into employment law, which I, which I really liked. It was super interesting. And then you just get carried away with like, whatever the next thing is, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get that. I'm going to, I'm a achiever, you know, like so many lawyers are. So I do think like, Yes, be a lawyer. There's so many great things about being a lawyer. It's super interesting work. You can make a positive impact, but stay in the right lane. (laughs) Do do what you think you'll love in 20 years, you know, and not not just what seems prestigious right now.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, in our in our last question that i wanted to pose to you is one of the things that we're so excited about is the growing army of folks who are passionate about this issue right and this podcast was developed for those particular folks who are leading state task forces you know working on subcommittees at the state and local level any you know i'd just be curious on your words of wisdom as you get to kind of address an army of well-being advocates across the country and any thoughts about you know just this fight this culture Shift any any recommendations or or, or motivational words to a, a, really a, a, an incredible growing number of people who are passionate about this issue.
2: Well, get involved in Lawyer Wellbeing Week. <laughs> That's the first thing I would say. Uh, and you know, part of part of resilience is anticipating failure. Along the way, and figuring out when you face those failures, what are the ten or twenty different ways that you're going to get around those obstacles? And I think that you know that doesn't sound very inspiring. Expect failure, but I think it's absolutely important to the cause that we're undertaking because there are so many obstacles. Uh, but it's so important. So expect that this is a long road. Things aren't going to change tomorrow. Uh, and really think about what those obstacles are. And when you have a, a failure, you know, don't feel like a failure. That think of the 20 different ways that you can get around whatever that obstacle is. Uh, and that's how I've approached it. That when I have a door closed or hear a no, um, I'm gonna find 20 different ways to get to my yes. Uh, maybe not as easily as, or as quickly as I wanted. Uh, but this this is a long game. This isn't a short game. And so just keep at it and really engage, you know, get connected with people who feel as passionate as you do so that we can all help keep our energy up.
1: I want to point out to everybody, um, we've been talking about Lawyer Wellbeing Week. And if you want to learn more about that, go to the National Task Force website, which is lawyerwellbeing.net. And all of the information uh, the great um, uh, materials and uh, worksheets and ideas for well-being is still up there and it's mm-hmm. applicable throughout the year. And so I'm hoping people will use that.
0: And thank you so much, again, for your for your leadership, for your inspiration, for taking risks in your personal life to become a leader in our movement, uh, for the the work that you're doing on the science side of well-being. I mean, we are truly fortunate to have you amongst us, uh, and and being a leader uh, in our movement. So thank you for being our first podcast guest. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And we will be back with the Path to Lawyer Wellbeing podcast in a couple weeks. Again, our goal is to do probably two a month, um, where we'll bring uh, more great guests like Anne uh, into the fold and talk about specific areas of of lawyer well-being. So uh, for me, Uh, signing off. Bree, any final closing thoughts?
1: Just that um, delight to get to spend time with you, Anne, as always. Thanks so much.
2: Great. Yep. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Thank you.